0: That is the Royal Gorge Bridge. If you get an opportunity to travel to Colorado Springs, you have got to go there. It is absolutely an amazing sight. Um, you know, uh, let, me, let me tell you a little bit about the bridge because I have a personal intimate relationship with this bridge. Uh, let me frame it for you. It was built in 1929 at an expense of $350,000. You can't even buy a house in Charleston for that price. I mean, absolutely incredible that bridge is it was built. It's 955 feet above the Arkansas River and it's about a quarter mile long. It was at one time the highest suspension bridge in the world. It's the highest suspension bridge in the United States at this time. It was made out of steel and is covered with wood planks and it was built into the surrounding granite walls. In the 1980s, it was uh, retrofitted with some new cable anchors and suspension rods. Uh, Since its opening, park officials have estimated that 26 million people have walked across that bridge. So what I did just right now is I just framed you the Royal Gorge Bridge. I presented you some data about the bridge, uh, its history about the bridge. 26 million people have crossed this bridge. So let me get a show of hands, based upon what you saw, based upon the data that I just gave you, based upon the other success that people have had with the bridge. How many of you would cross this bridge, you think, if you were out there? Okay. All right. All right. Uh, For those of you who didn't raise raise your hand, don't feel feel ashamed. I was petrified. I, I sent my five-year-old daughter across, and my nine-year-old daughter across, and my wife across. When we were there in the early 2000s, and um, and I didn't dare to cross. When I finally did get up the guts to cross, I ran across it, only to find out that when I finished running across it, and I was terrified, that I realized what an idiot I should have just run to the middle and turn around and went back but then I'd have to go back it again, so it absolutely terrified me. So what I just did was present you with the knowledge of the bridge, and then I gave you a little bit of the intellectual data around the concept of the bridge, And then you had to make a decision in just a little bit of time. You decided whether or not you would have actually crossed this bridge if you visited the bridge. You had to make this determination if you would just look at it from afar or you would actually cross and experience the bridge. This is exactly how faith works. Um, We must know about something first. First we we must know about god first or some idea about god first and, and this is called the notitia. it's a, a fancy latin word but it's you have to know about god first you have to know something about him that there is a god that there is jesus then you move to the next phase where you have to affirm the reliability of the knowledge it's called the essencia it's when you assent to the idea that that The data that I've received, the information that I was just given about the bridge is accurate and it's true. The history of it is correct. And then you move from the knowledge about the Royal Gorge Bridge to actually, oh, okay, it's made out of steel. Well, that's granite on those walls. Okay, not sandstone. That makes a big difference to me. It's been retrofitted. I appreciate that. That's a good thing. You begin to find out more about it. And then you move to the next part about with the bridge. But also with faith, where you actually have to entrust yourself with the bridge. This is called the fiducia. This is where you make a, come to a point about the subject, about the knowledge, about the data, where you decide whether or not I'm going to cross the bridge, that I'm actually going to trust the system that's been put in place. All this we go through every single day of our lives. It's not just something we do with Christianity. We do it with bridges. We do it with cars. I, I'm I'm having to make a trip in December and I'm wondering if my two thousand and seven vehicle will make the, you know, fifteen hundred mile trip round trip with the family it could carry the, everybody or whether or not i need to rent a vehicle to take the trip but I, I you know learn about the trip then i think about okay what are the facts about the trip okay a lot of uphill um a lot of braking hopefully you know uh, a lot of gas was going to be used uh is my vehicle too old Are the front bearings shot uh, do i need to do the timing belt before i go i'll go through all the data about my vehicle and then i will determine whether or not i am actually going to Take that vehicle on a trip. This is not just something isolated that we do in Christianity, but it is part of what we do in our faith with God. That's why it's so important that we frame God correctly. See, it was so important that I framed the bridge correctly because I want to inspire you to go see the the Royal Gourd Bridge. So I, I, I provided you the information and the data that, hey, and for you, maybe just the fact that 26 million other people crossed the bridge made the bridge a go for you. So it's so important that when we think about God, when we, when we look at God, that we frame God correctly in our understanding. So today we're going to be talking about something that's very dear to my life. Is God trustworthy? Or we're going to be talking about God being trustworthy. And this is really interesting to me because I've spent my adult life gathering data about God. I have. You want to talk to me about cosmology? I'll talk to you about it. You wanna to talk to me about nihilism and rationalism? I'll talk to you about it. Presuppositionalism? You wanna talk about the, you know, the ontological argument about God? You wanna talk about the reliability of scripture? You wanna talk about the, the historicity of the resurrection of Christ? You wanna talk about quantum or and how it affects our view? You wanna talk about evolution? I, could, I have gathered so much data about God. So much data about God. But when I've begun to realize is that it is possible I don't trust him. That me, just like so many other Christians, have spent their lifetimes figuring out, is there a God? Then gathering our knowledge about the God and whether or not the gospels are reliable or we could say apologetics and go through this whole process about my data being reliable. And we do that about everything. But then it comes down to a point, but do I really trust him? Do I really trust him? And, and this has been something that has been uh, a, almost an offensively challenged to my personal life with some of the things I'm physically facing. Do I really trust him? Do I really believe? And, I, and I'm going to speak for baby boomers right now. Do I really believe I'm going to raise from the dead? And if I really believe I'm going to raise from the dead, if I really believe I'm going to put off mortality and put on immortality like the scripture says and like Jesus showed and like Jesus even showed his power with it, with Lazarus and all that, then why am I eating kale? You know, why am I so afraid to die? Why am I terrified? Why am I going to a gym I don't want to go to? And and all those things... And and, and let me just say, it's good to go to the gym. I have no defense for kale, okay? (laughs) Spinach, spinach can do the job all by itself. You don't need to do, you don't need kale. You get that vitamin K. We don't even know what vitamin K, I mean, it's like, come on, we're just making stuff up, why? Because I believe, and I can only speak for baby boomers, we're afraid uh, to death of death. And what statistics are beginning to show that that's no different for Christian baby boomers than it is for non-Christian baby boomers. And it's like, well, how can that be? It's because we got the data. I have no problems with the reliability of the Gospels. And if you do have a reliability with how accurate they are, uh, whether they're myths or not, please talk to me because I want to I get you in some good data. But what I've realized that having good data does not take the anxiety of the challenges of life away from you. So today we're going to talk about God being trustworthy. One of the reasons is because there's something about the statement of God is trustworthy, that is, that it's different than if I put up there God is good or God is holy. Because that doesn't necessarily beckon to me, but by saying God is trustworthy, he's almost kind of like, it's like God is saying, trust me. Trust me, it's an attribute or a characteristic that's invitational, that actually prompts a response from me, not from God. So when a person is saying they're trustworthy, I don't know if you go to the gym or not, but if you go to the gym and you want to bench press, you get a, you know, maybe it's a little bit beyond what you can lift. You start looking around the gym for, from, for somebody that's uh, able to spot you, okay? You're not picking some like, 119 pound, you know, 6 foot 5, 13 year old kid that could never, can't even lift the 25 pound weight to put it on the 45 pound bar you start looking around for somebody that's trustworthy. But what you do is you look around, you begin to do the data, you begin to see some guy who's jerking this weight up, throwing it up in the air, spinning it on his finger, and then putting it back down. And then you say, hey, you look trustworthy. Will you spot me? You see, God is, through his trustworthy, is inviting us to have him spot our lives. Do we believe the data about God? Do we believe our knowledge of God? And does it get us to the point when we just don't come to church or do Christianity and look at the bridge? Does it dare us and invite us to cross the bridge? It's not just the knowledge, it's not just the evaluation. It's the invitation to take the journey. So this is what's going on in the epic story of the Exodus from Egypt. If you're not familiar with, let me just sum it up a little bit. After years of ca- uh, hundreds of years of captivity, God sends Moses to bring the knowledge of Yahweh to the captives in Israel, okay, the descendants of Abraham. But then he performs 10 miracles slash plagues right in the, in the middle of Egypt. I think the number 10, and I, I won't spend any time on it because I, it's interesting, but God picked the number 10. And, and because I think there is a certain amount of data that each of us requires. Maybe the number 10 represents a complete uh, engineering schematic. Okay. Maybe one miracle we could say was a fluke, two miracles. ha <laughs> Three, a good story. Four, hey, let's have a beer. But 10, 10. Is, is almost like a, an, an engineering schematic. It's like, okay, I've given you a lot of data for you to trust me. Because he's going to give them all this data, all these plagues, not because he's just bullying people, but he, he, I don't think he's doing the plagues to prove anything to the Egyptians. He's proving it to the Israelites. Because he's then going to say to them, hey, come out in the desert with me. And I know you don't have any food, and I know you don't have any weapons, and i know you know it's like so he's going to call them into a journey and they've got to know they've got to have their data so god establishes the knowledge the conclusion and then invites them across the bridge see so what god's doing in the 10 plagues is establishing his trustworthiness and then he does this thing after the trip is all over he institute what's called the passover or the seder they where every Jewish family would celebrate a remembrance of that night. Because it's so important for us to remember. So we have some kind of put together a, a, a meal, okay? They have to dress a certain way at the table. You, you know, I'm not really too familiar with it, you know, uh, but, you know, they, they dress a certain way. They've got to be ready with their staff in their hand. They're eating kind of spicy food or, or food that doesn't taste real good. And the bread hasn't had time to, to rise because they had to leave in a hurry. And everything was symbolic. And he said, I want you to take this meal every single day. And, and, and I mean, every single year. And the reason why he does that is because you leak. Because as Christians, when we face the desert, when we face the challenges of life, we begin to lose our confidence in the trustworthiness of God. It's not so much we lose our confidence in ourselves. I never really had that much. But it's where it really happens is when we lose our confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So in Exodus 12, 14, it says, "'Now this day will be memorial to you, "'and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. "'Throughout your generations, "'you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance.'" It's like, why? It's because if you lose the trustworthiness of God, you lose your journey. You get stuck in the desert. See, that's what happens to most of the Israelites. They lose their confidence in God, and they get stuck in the desert. So throughout their journeys, God always is establishing these memorial events. Some would say that the Jewish faith is a one of remembering. There's always remembering, and there's remembering in the Christian faith as well. But one of the times that I really spoke to me about, God said, listen, I'm gonna want you to do some stuff so that you remember the trustworthiness of this bridge, that you'll you'll remember, that when you're far away from the bridge that you'll remember is when they cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land. God tells Joshua, who's now in charge, Moses is dead, God tells Joshua to have the priests of Israel before they go through the Jordan River into the Promised Land. He tells them to take the Ark of the Covenant and to step into the river. Now, the only thing I can liken this to is the tesseract. If you watch Marvel at all, the Ark of the Covenant is like the tesseract. It's like, it didn't glow blue or anything like that, but it it was this otherworldly, God-empowered, structure that God used to um, represent his presence with them. And so he told them, he said, tell all the, all the priests to carry it on their shoulders and take the Tesseract, I mean the Ark of the Covenant, and carry it into the middle of the river. When they get in the middle of the river, all of a sudden the Jordan River begins to heap up. It's not like the Red Sea where it splits. It actually is flowing this way and it begins to heap up into a like a wall a mound of of water and the river stopped over a million people passed through the jordan river to the other side completely dry and right after the event takes place god commanded them to take 12 stones from the river and to stack them on the shore it's like what an interesting thing for god to do he tells them before i close the river down i want you to get I want you to get the stones from the middle of the river. 12 stones. Let me, let me read you the story. And Joshua said to them, cross again the ark, of the, uh, the ark of the Lord your God in the middle of the Jordan, and each one of you shall take a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask later, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho. That are right about to go into Jericho. We all know about that story. The walls of Jericho fall down. Big battle ensues. All the battles are beginning to happen. But between the the river and, and this battle that's going to happen, there's this little town called Gilgal. And so the people go, and they take the 12 stones that they had taken from the Jordan, and Joshua set them up in Gilgal. And he said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? You shall inform your children, saying, Israel, crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord had done with the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. What is God doing? He's establishing trustworthiness. So I started looking at the story and and I'm like, okay, well, how did God do that? Because I need God to show himself trustworthy to me. Okay, the challenges that I've got going on in my life You know, I I really need to know, God. Are you really, you really going to help me? Okay. Are you really going to take care of me, whether I live or die, whether I, whether I walk or crawl, whatever it is? Can I trust you? So why stones from the river? And I think this is absolutely beautiful. Okay, guys, can I just tell you? You don't write stories. You don't make up stories like this. This is so brilliant the inspiration just drips off of it. It's like, this is so incredible. Well, I'll tell you why stones, because they were smoothed by the river. You take 12 stones out of the middle of the river that have been in there for ages and you begin to stack them on the side, they're gonna look different than all the other stones that are around the topography. Okay, And not only that, you're gonna take them all this way into this other town where there are no smooth stones at all. There might not even be any stones. How long have we been amazed about uh, Stonehenge? I mean, we've just, you know, aliens, uh, I mean, I don't know, uh, giant creatures, uh, trying to explain these stones that are not native to that particular area. I mean, they've always fascinated us. So, So God's onto something here take something that is not normally found in this environment and put it in this environment. So he takes the, he takes the stones. They are smooth compared to the other formations. They represent the, the obstacle that was overcome. See, the smoothness says river, and it represents, ah, these were in the river. I mean, that's, that's pretty interesting. And that it also provides data. Well, then that river must have dried up in order for them to get these stones. Because we're not talking about stones this big. We're talking about, they, it said that they put the stones on their shoulders. Okay, so these were, these were big rocks. So that's why they came from there. So, so everybody knew it's like, well, no, you're not diving for this. They didn't have any boat that was going to lift them from the bottom and they were going to haul it up and then take it over. But rather that meant that, huh, that's weird. That means it must have dried up. Why stack them? Because I'm, believe me, I am scouring the data. And why am I scouring the data for trustworthiness? Okay, when you get an MRI, when a loved one walks out on you, when you're uncertain about your financial future, when when somebody that you love so much has died, or when death walks into your room, you're gonna start scouring your data. Is it reliable? Is it true? Can it be trusted? So why stack them? Well, the reason why they're stacked is because it's intentionality. This cannot be an act of nature. Okay? Because a smooth stone, I could say, well, yeah, you know, glacial activity. You know? I mean, that's how we explain a lot of things. Glaciers. You know? We don't understand something in, in the world. Oh, yeah, it was, the glaciers did it. You know? It's kind of the geological catch-all for all Origin of species and everything. Yeah, glaciers, you know. But when you got 12 stones stacked up, what does that tell you? Somebody did it. You know, when you wake up the following morning and there's a bowl sitting in the the, uh, sink and there's a box of cereal sitting right next to it, you realize, huh, somebody left that there. Somebody had some cereal. So the 12 stacked together meant that there was something about intentionality in it. It was, it was not an act of nature, but of God with man. Okay, why 12 stones? Like I said, I'm a, I'm a dogged when it comes to data. Why 12? Because each tribe had to discover the trustworthiness of God. Each tribe had to discover it. Nobody was going to rely on, you know, the tribe of Judah, you know and nobody was just going to listen to Ephraim or or Manasseh everybody every tribe had to have somebody that could vouch for the miracle okay here's an important thing is that each generation has to verify the trustworthiness of God our grandparents at least my age grandparents They did their job verifying the trustworthiness of God in their generation. Each tribe has to determine for itself whether or not God is trustworthy. Moms, dads, you are determining right now the trustworthiness of God for your children. Well, my kids don't believe in God. Well, I'm telling you, they got their trustworthiness of God from somebody or the lack of his trustworthiness from somebody. Each tribe, each one of us has to decide whether or not God can be trusted. Why Gilgal? Why did Joshua go there? Why not take them in, why not just carry them into um, uh, Jericho? Why not just kind of carry them around? Um, And then I looked at that and I kind of looked at the map a little bit and here's the river here and here's Jordan. It's like because there has got to be a place because these stones represent trustworthiness is that God's last miracle and your next battle, there's got to be something in between. There's got to be something that dares you to go to Jericho, okay? There's got to be a place where trustworthiness abides for you to take the next step to go across the bridge. And Gilgal was right, right in between the two of them. Here was the miracle of God. Here is where my next battle is. This is the place where I decide whether the journey goes forward or not with God. We all live in Gilgal. The question is, are we living in Gilgal without stones? You know, that's that's what we do. Do we believe in the trustworthiness of God? And we all get there. This is not, a, okay, well, Paul's in his 60s now. Yeah, okay, he's, he's preaching like a 60-year-old. No, no. It, I, the, the challenges of Jericho come to everybody. You know, you're trying to figure out what you're doing with your 2-year-old. You know, you're trying to figure out what's going on with your 13-year-old daughter. I mean, there will always be a Jericho. There will always be a need to appeal. At work, you will always question whether or not God's got a future for you, or if God's going to use you, or how am I going to survive this work environment. Every, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. There will always be, there'll always be another election in the United States okay, that will bring up upheaval and, and all this other stuff. There will always be the China's and the Russians and the Iran's and the North Korea's of the world that will be challenging your way of life. They'll always be there. The question is, is will you live in those spaces with, with a confidence in God? Gilgal is that place. So why tell your kids? Cause that seems to be very much part of the story. This particular miracle. And this is so important. Okay, and, and and let me just say, we teach healing here at Crosstown. We pray for healing, okay, at Crosstown. But we also know it doesn't always happen the way that we want it to happen. Okay. We know that it's not, it doesn't contradict our faith, but we, we also set our faith towards God and we ask because he said, you have not because you ask not. So I, if, if I don't get my miracle, I don't want it to because I didn't ask God. We understand that there could be something else in play here so why tell your kids because this particular miracle was never again performed okay but its remembrance had the same impact when they faced their enemies that's the power of testimony Okay, if God heals me or not of all my pains and all the different things, my discomforts and all that that I deal with, you know, I've got to be honest with you, no no big deal, okay, I get it, maybe not, praying that he will, but when I hear the story of how God prevailed in your life, that gives me courage. you say well if god's still if god's true and if god's real then why doesn't he raise somebody else from the dead because there's something about the stacked stones of the body and the resurrection of jesus christ that god knows if you really believe the data this miracle was good enough i don't have to perform this one again and he's telling the israelites a hey, hey, stack the stones. Why? Because, you know, I'm not opening the Red Sea again. Just want to let you. So everybody learns from the same story. I'm not doing that one again. But the stacked stones should be good enough. And if God feels that that's good enough, then, then the only reason why it doesn't work in my life is because I'm not looking at the stones. That's the only reason why it doesn't work. Every generation has to look at the facts and determine if they're going to trust God I, and that's why I love YouTube, man. I go on YouTube, and, and I thought I was going to be a big deal one day. You know, I th- really did. I thought I was going to be like this amazing pastor, like Spurgeon and you know Warfield, and you know some of these greats. And they are going to write books about me. And it's like I was going to be oh, an Augustine, or I, you know, I'm I'm cool with who I am. It's worked out really great, you know. Um, but I love going on YouTube, and I start seeing 30-year-old men and women young men and women, teaching about the scriptures. And I'm like, golly, if he's not still stacking stones, defending the faith with history and science, philosophy and scripture. And it's like, golly, he will not leave any generation on the face of the earth without stones to observe. That's the faithfulness of God. So if you you have lost the trustworthiness of God. If you're nervous about things in your life like, like we all can, then the question is, is, are you looking at the stones and are you willing to take this trip across the bridge? You know, as we've been looking at an accurate picture of God to frame him right in the face of Jesus, we see that he, Jesus is doing this in all, all that he does. Let me read you this story. It's, it's very much like the last one. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples to get into a boat and go ahead to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain to, by himself to pray, and when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat that the disciples was in, were in was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage. It is, it is I. Do not be afraid. Okay? What is it? It's a ghost. I don't know. More data is needed, isn't it? More data is needed. So Jesus says, oh, it's me. Hey, guys. Hey, look at me. Jesus. So, oh, okay. Well, Peter, I love him. Because Peter's not just going to live scared. Peter's not just going to stay in a boat that's being tossed around. Peter says, I'm going to need a little more data here. He says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out on the water. What's he doing? He's establishing trustworthiness. And Jesus said, come. I can only imagine the smile that was on his face. It's like, oh, dude. Somebody who dares to cross the bridge. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said, you of little faith, why did you doubt when they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. Okay, what, so what's, what happened in Peter? Peter knew Jesus, Peter believes the facts of Jesus's power because he saw Jesus stack some stones like feed the 5,000 and maybe uh, uh, heal the leper. He, he saw that Jesus had real credible data. And then Peter stepped out in trust. And I think most of us have done this. We call this saving faith. I think most of us have said, okay, I believe Jesus died and he rose on the third day and he ascended to heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. Nice seeing creedish stuff. You know, we, we say all this other stuff. But Peter said, okay, that should mean something. That should mean that I can go towards Jericho. That should... Prove something about the character of God towards my life that he's trustworthy and Peter dares to step out but like all of us when we focus on the events of the moment we forget the trustworthiness of God <sighs> isn't that how it is I mean I up to the age of 60 I was invincible I mean I'm serious in my own mind okay in my own mind but I was invincible. I was gonna be mountain biking in my 70s. I was going to win the trophy for the fastest 70 year old in South Carolina and North Carolina. You know why? Because all the other 70 year olds wouldn't be able to ride a mountain bike. I was gonna get it by default just for showing up. (laughs) And it's funny, all of a sudden you lose a loved one, a friend. All of a sudden, you get the MRI. All of a sudden, you find out you're not as invincible as you thought. All of a sudden, you begin looking at the waves and all that theory about God, all that theology, all that Nicene Creedish stuff, all of it is great, but it just kind of like, I don't wanna cross this bridge. I don't wanna get old. I don't wanna die. I wanna stay young, give me some more kale. But I think it happens to all of us, no matter where we are. I don't don't think 30-year-olds are immune to this. I don't think 16-year-olds are immune to this. In the end, Peter, in his sinking, remembered, save me. So let me ask you this. Are you in a sinking moment right now? Are you in a sinking moment? Because you will get one. There is no earth that doesn't sink. There is no marriage that doesn't sink. There is no challenge that that doesn't sink, okay? Are you in your sinking moment? I believe that miracles are not God trying to fix things. I think now, as I've grown older, and like I said, we teach and pray for miracles in people's lives. But I believe that miracles are not God trying to fix things, why? Because otherwise, I would conclude that God's not really good at it. Wouldn't you admit it? I mean, it's like, if miracles are God trying to fix things, he ain't really, ain't very, apparently he's not good at it. Or, that God only fixes things for some people. Or, that there is this secret formula in how to get a miracle. And most of us don't know it. You know, I just don't see that consistent with the God of Scripture. I believe God does miracles so that the surrounding tribe can stir up the trustworthiness of God in their minds. God let John the Baptist and the Apostle James get beheaded. And so, the reason why I think he lets Peter and John out of prison with an angel is because that tribe was losing its sense of trustworthiness of God. It's like, wow, John the Baptist and, and James, he was in charge. It's like, well, what? It's like, okay, you need some stone stacked? Let me stack another stone for you. I'm gonna get Peter and James out of prison. Peter later on in his life, knows he's about to die. And He doesn't want everybody around him to get freaked out by it so he writes this thing to him and the reason why it's so important he's he knows what it's like to trust and then he knows what it's like to step and then he knows what it's like to sink and to be afraid i love christianity because even its heroes get terrified even their heroes succumb to the battles and the challenges. But when they cry out to God, the trustworthiness of God is once again stirred up within their souls. So Peter is writing his letter and he's writing it to his followers of his church and he writes this, he says, therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling, my body is imminent. He's like, I need to stir you up with what I saw, what God has done. Because he says what? Because when I die, you're you're gonna be like, oh my God. It happened to Peter. And so he says, no, 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 no. I know what it's like to have a sinking moment and you're gonna have your sinking moment. And every one of us here are going to have our sinking moments. So what do we need to do? Stir ourselves up with remembrance, return to the stones. And what are those stones? Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. That we are more than conquerors through Christ who strengthens us that we are seated with God in the heavenlies that we will put off mortality and that we will put on immortality have you forgotten that? I sure had I have been pursuing a God that will help my 401k that will help me run my best 5k time that help my kids get into the right school that helped me buy that vehicle that I want. I don't wanna talk about immortality. I don't wanna talk about cancer. I don't wanna talk about pain. I don't wanna talk about death. I don't, you know, I, I, I just want this life. But we need to realize that all of us live in Gilgal, that place between the miracle of the resurrection and our next battle. The question is, is are we going to live there without the 12 stones? So Peter says, I consider it right to stir you up because I'm about to die, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will be diligent that at any time after my departure that you will be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly despised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of the majesties, the majesty of God. Peter is saying basically, I am a smooth stone, my life, I saw it. I stood on the Mount of Transfiguration, I saw that which that Jesus that we walked with, that Jewish man transformed into something that we didn't even recognize and we felt like dead men. We saw the miracles, we saw all that he did, we saw the resurrection, we saw the ascension. And he's like, I'm here to tell you that you're going to get sad with life, but I need to teach you how to stir yourself up with what we know to be true so that you can cross the bridge. I am not preaching a message here today so that you can face death. And I'm not dying, I just got disc problems, you know, that I caused myself. But why not have the trustworthiness of God in every situation? Some of you have lost confidence of God at work. You're starting to waver. Some of you have lost confidence in the middle of your marriage. It's not working out exactly the way that you thought. Some of you are facing physical issues some of you are absolutely paralyzed over the condition of the united states democracy some people here listening today and let me just say it if you're listening online some of you are home because it's prudent because of COVID, but some of you are home because you're afraid okay some of us have developed amnesia we've forgotten the king of glory it's like oh hope he performs a miracle there is no other miracle greater than the miracle of jesus christ raised from the dead and then the gift of the holy spirit that he's given to us it is not a cleverly devised tale it is not a myth over 26 billion people have crossed this bridge and have called upon the name of the lord Peter says, So we have a prophetic word made sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Return to the stones of the gospel. So let's go in this moment as we come to communion. What are we doing? What are we setting up over here with the bread and the cup? Let's go back to Gilgal and see the stones. Are you facing shame that you can't beat? Then go back to the cross. Do you fear death? Then go back to the resurrection. Are you struggling with depression? Then go back to the promises of scripture and discover who you are. God has laid throughout humanity stones to be discovered That will declare his trustworthiness to every one of us no matter what we're facing if we're willing to gather the stones father as we enter into this moment this gilgal moment because we all are in that place between the miracle and our next battle and as peter said it would do well with us to stir up in remembrance what God has done. This was not some cleverly devised tale from the first century of history, but it was a story that transformed humanity and provided us with humanity at its best. Christ in us, the hope of glory in every situation, so maybe you have to be like Peter today. Like I am like Peter today. I had all my facts. Call me out of the boat, Lord. I'll come, I believe in you. But two to three steps into a little bit of pain and discomfort and I'm like, oh my God. So today we come to the table and we say as Peter, Lord, save me from my fear save me from my depression save me from my doubt god today as we take the body and the blood of jesus christ remembered in the elements we are picking up the very rock of our salvation the cornerstone of all trustworthiness and we through your Holy Spirit, your word, and your testimony, experience reinvigoration in Gilgal so that we can rise and face our Jericho. Let me encourage you to come, not to a cleverly devised story, but to the rock of your salvation.